Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what I got for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, a very interesting interview conducted with Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, and his comments on the war in Ukraine. Then we're going to talk about the Camp David summit, the summit between U.S., South Korea, and Japan. And then we'll get into the BRICS summit and detail some of the things we can expect from that. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid fire news so we have andy harris a republican house representative saying that it's time for a peace deal in ukraine uh, it only take him uh let's see uh 20 something months uh, late but uh you know better late than never i suppose but he said this specifically quote i'm not sure it's winnable anymore without our help Ukraine would abjectly lose the war. And with our help, it's not winning. I think the time has come to realistically call for peace talks. End quote. So at least one person gets it. Now, of course, there's a number of people in Congress who do get it. But the real thing you need is a majority vote to stop sending money and weapons to Ukraine. But given that uh, three quarters of Congress voted against pulling out of Syria... And given that at least half the Republicans are all in on fighting Russia, these the neocons, well, and the Democrats aren't exactly anti-war either, well, I think it's safe to say we're going to be giving money to Ukraine right up until the day Ukraine ceases to exist. Even as forces within the U.S. government start to agitate for repositioning ourselves for the war with China, you know, the, the the reasonable opposition is the opposition that wants us to get into a, another war. That, that's the strongest opposition we have to the Ukraine war right now. The, op, the, the forces that want to get us into the Taiwan war. It's a damn shame. Uh, speaking of a damn shame, have you heard uh, that song, Richmond, North of Richmond? I just listened to that thing on repeat. It's a really good song. I was, I got it stuck in my head the other day. So I, and I guess I'm sharing it with you now. But anyway, in other news, we have Jens Stoltenberg's secretary proposing a peace plan where Ukraine gives up territory in exchange for NATO membership. I think I accidentally said this was Jens Stoltenberg who proposed this, but it was his secretary. Uh, And then he then retracted this. I'm talking about the secretary whose name I am blanking on. But his secretary then retracted those statements and apologized for the way he worded his statements uh so sort of a a two-faced way of saying i'm sorry but i'm not really sorry which you know what we'll we'll excuse the cowardice on his part apologizing as as, to ukraine as if we owed them as if we owed them and not the other way around as if our existence was dependent on them and not the other way around Uh, apparently the tail wags the dog these days but even with this proposal here where ukraine gives up land in exchange for peace with Russia and NATO membership, they still don't get it. They still don't get it. NATO membership is the problem. 
Ukraine's potential of being in NATO is the problem. So how can adding Ukraine to NATO in exchange for ceding territory be a solution? It's not a solution. You're just adding to the problem. You're not helping. I said it last week. These people just don't deal in the realm of reality. They're too emotional to handle real issues in a realistic way. And yet these are the people controlling all the levers of power in this country and in a number of other countries. But, well, let's face it, it's the United States. It's really just us. It's, people like to talk about, oh, the West, this and the West. That It's just us. Let's keep it one buck and 50 cents. Or these days, three bucks. <laughs> but yeah, it's just us. And all the people controlling the levers of power here are pro-war and are too emotional to accept that Ukraine is lost. Like the rumblings of potentially leaving Ukraine alone have only just started to gain some traction. Uh, Again, Andy Biggs. (laughs) But just starting to gain traction after we've given them 225 billion coming up, the extra 25 billion that Biden is sending, 225 billion dollars in and we're only just now coming to that conclusion. So, yeah, they, they, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And they're going to... Ah, I, I can't stand these people. Because they talk about this. Like, they'll say... When they have their, their, their moments of brilliance, right? They'll know all the right things to say. But then when it comes down to the actual policy, when it comes down to actually doing something tangible and useful, uh, they fall short. Just like with that meeting, that fake peace summit in Mecca last week in Arabia, where they had all these countries there except for Russia. You're going to have a peace summit between Ukraine and Russia, but Russia's not invited. Where's the problem? Can it's it's unreal literally it's not real they these people are not real <laughs> they're not serious they're not serious actors they're just actors playing the part of statesmen playing the part of diplomats but they don't know jack diddley or squad about diplomacy and they don't bother to learn they just think they know and then they do nothing useful all they know how to do is get into a war that's it that's all they don't know how to make peace they don't know how to do hard negotiations. They don't like having to ask and be asked hard questions. If they if they like those things, if they or if they at the very least if they knew how to do them, they would be asking hard questions of the Ukrainians. Okay, well, you've been given all this money, all this equipment, all this aid, and you've taken how much land? You've dealt how many casualties to the Russians? You've lost how many men? You've lost how many equipment? How how many pieces of tanks, armored vehicles, and artillery in exchange for what exactly? It's a failure. And these people are too emotional to accept that Ukraine has lost. And they, they, they live in the, this fantasy land of the rules-based international order where they get to do whatever they want and everyone has to contort to them, which is probably, now that I'm thinking about it, probably that mindset of we're in control is perhaps one of the reasons why they can't accept the fact that they're not in control. They've gotten used to being 
they gotten used to having a say in everything. They've gotten used to ha having their way. And on this issue, there is no way for them to have their way. They have to accept the terms that other people put forward, other people being the Russians. And they can't handle that. They can't, they don't have the mental maturity to handle that. They're children, they're children. And here we are where it's, it's clear and obvious. It's Lana, it's, oh my goodness. It's not like Russia hasn't said that Ukraine being in NATO is a red line that they're not going to accept being crossed. So how then do you come to the conclusion that adding Ukraine to NATO in exchange for just a little bit of territory, how, how do you come to that conclusion? That, that that's going to solve the war? That that's going to be a, a, a viable piece? It, I tell you, these people, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Um, if we have Biden f finally responding to the Maui fires. And it was very lackluster, to tell you the truth. Uh, and honestly, it's a little too late. The damage has already been done, both literally and you know, metaphorically. Because no comment is crazy. No comment is crazy. And it, it doesn't matter what he says after that. It doesn't matter what he does after that. No comment, I'm going to go back to my vacation. I'm going to go back to sunbathing on the beach while your home is burning down and you're floating out to sea to try to escape the fires in this biblical catastrophe, which has befallen Hawaii. No comment. It, there's nothing he can do about that at that point. That, that PR battle is already lost. That public opinion battle is already lost. Uh, and one of the things that uh, was brought up regarding the Maui fires, since I'm on the topic now, was the plans for uh, Hawaii to be the testing ground for smart cities and, you know, all that anti-humanist green agenda trash. They were going to use Hawaii as a sort of a staging ground for the implementation of that in the United States. Now, some people argue that the burning down of Hawaii uh, conflicts with that. But when you think about who's going to be the ones in charge of the rebuilding, it's the government. You think about, and, and and the government's the one who gives out the contracts. Who do you think they're going to give the contracts to? They're going to give it to all the same corporations and, bil and businesses and billionaires and millionaires who are in on the green agenda. So the fires actually enable the entire city to be rebuilt in the 15-minute smart city style where you have no freedom and you have you get to be monitored. You get to have your electric car that can't go anywhere that the state doesn't want you to. And costs you a fortune to have and maintain and to charge. It's that's the destruction of all this land and all this real estate in Hawaii enables the smart city to move forward. Precisely because it's the government who gets to take charge of the recovery effort. As opposed to, yes, you had some pieces of the city that were already going along with this green, uh, smart city thing, but consider the rest of the territory in Hawaii where people like those, that row of people that I would talked about last time when I was talking about some of the, the accusations and theories being levied with those people who didn't want to sell their homes, uh, who had magnificent real estate and a really good ocean view, their homes get burned down. Their, all their homes get burned down. 
now perhaps it's just the wildfire, but there were strange shapes seen during the wildfires, not exactly natural, which has hinted at the idea that the fires were started by someone. Again, if anyone, it was going to be someone in our own government, not China, not Russia, not anybody. But you factor in people like that who don't want to sell their land to corporations or to the government or to the billionaires or to anyone because they like their home. You combine that and you multiply that over the over the width of the city and even people who would have sold their homes, sold their land. Hawaii is prime real estate as a state. Hawaii as a state is prime real estate. So all of that would have been exorbitant. The cost of buying out the entire city would have been exorbitant. But if everything is smoke and ash, well, now you can buy up that same land for pennies on the dollar. So if this was orchestrated by our government, which I'm, I can't rule out because I know the nature of these people. If it was a man-made fire and if it was a part of the green agenda, it would further the smart city agenda rather than hinder it. So that's something to think about with the Maui fires, which I think are subsiding now. Uh, again, the damage has been done, well, literally and metaphorically. So we have that. And on another note, and on another topic altogether, we have Pakistan's Federal Investigation Agency arresting Shah Mahmood Qureshi. Qureshi, there we go. Shah Mahmood Qureshi, uh, who is a two-time foreign minister himself, and a close partner to the former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was arrested on corruption charges and jailed. Uh, Mahmoud was arrested for exposing official secrets and harming state interests, which reeks of we're being exposed, so we're going to shut you up so that you don't expose our corruption. That's what that sounds like to me. Maybe that's just me being biased by the current state of American politics right now. But that's what that seems like to me. And the significance of this being that Qureshi, at this moment in time, was the leader of the primary political opposition to the current ruling government in Pakistan, the, the people that arrested Imran Khan. So it seems to be a, a battle between entrenched political interests, or at the very least, uh, a battle between two political factions uh, going into the realm of legal warfare. So an interesting situation going on in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan is perhaps isn't exactly the best place to be in right now, especially after those uh, biblical floods that they had not too long ago. So uh, big stuff going down in Pakistan. We have Russia showcasing captured NATO equipment in a military parade, and Ukraine uh, followed that up with a parade of destroyed Russian tanks in Kiev. So we're seeing... Uh, I, I would say escalation, but not really. It doesn't seem like an escalatory mood to me. So I'm thinking of the word here. But really, what is being demonstrated, at least on the Russian side, is that they're not really fighting just Ukraine. They're fighting all of NATO. Because it's not just Ukrainian former Soviet equipment that they're parading. It's NATO tanks, NATO armored vehicles, NATO artillery pieces. NATO this, NATO that, and then they had, they had, again, the Russians are toxic, so they, they take the NATO equipment, and then you can get like a side-by-side -side comparison between them and the Russian equipment, because they'll have the, their own military equipment sitting next to NATO equipment, 
and then they let the people go in and see the insides of what not. I'd imagine it's a very cool experience for just your average city goer, but yeah, Russia's fighting NATO, and this is exactly what I've been talking about. They get to destroy because of courtesy of all the weapons and resources we've given to Ukraine. For them to fight the war for us, the Russians get to destroy our equipment without being at war with us. And since we don't have the production to keep up with Ukraine's needs, Russia's not just demilitarizing Ukraine as they grind them down, they're demilitarizing all of NATO. With perhaps the sole exception of the United States, we're just significantly weaker because we're the only country in NATO that has sufficient productive capacity to even attempt to hope to re replenish these supplies of equipment and weapons. Everyone else is just screwed, which is, again, probably one of the reasons why France can't exactly do much with Niger. They don't have the wherewithal, or at least uh, not enough to follow through on their threats. They, they might be able to do a military intervention where they do a, a brief commando raid, but in terms of an actual occupation, I don't know if they have the ability to do that anymore. Now, maybe they'll prove me wrong. But speaking of Niger, there's still no intervention in Niger from France, ECOWAS or otherwise, ECOWAS or otherwise. And ECOWAS is still threatening to do so. Everyone who, who's threatened to do so before is still threatening to do so now. The African Union seems to have backed off. Um, but ECOWAS is now saying that there's going to be an African D-Day into Niger, which if that actually happened, would spark a massive international war spanning across just about all of West Africa, south of Algeria and Mauritania. Uh, let me check the map for my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything south of Algeria and Mauritania, because Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger would all be in. And then everything south of them would essentially be fighting them. So it'd be a massive war in West Africa. So hope and pray that it doesn't happen. But no one wants to back down. And it, I say no one as if the coup in Niger was obligated to back down. As far as they are concerned and as far as I'm concerned, that's a domestic affair in Niger. No one else has a right to intervene in that uh, unless unless the the coup unless the military coup decided that they were going to start getting militant and hostile with their neighbors then you would have justification now you have the grounds for a potential intervention or at the very least a mobilization to bolster your border and your defenses along the border but niger hasn't even even after all the, the talk of being invaded by multiple countries from multiple different directions, they've never once said, you know what, we're if this happens, we're gonna invade your country. If this happens, we're gonna we're gonna bring the fight to you. They haven't said any of that. They closed their airspace. They've been doing purely domestic things. So as far as I, and I'm sure the, the, the coup in Niger are concerned, this is a domestic affair. No one else has the right to intervene, especially since the military in Niger has not been hostile to any other nation in Africa. So, but, but again, we'll see how this develops. So we'll keep our eyes out. We will do exactly that. 
But that's all the rapid fire news we got, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. So, we have an interview with Lukashenko. A very, very interesting interview. I have lots of quotes. We're going to go through what he says and extrapolate some nice bits of information we can get out of him. So, without further ado, let's go. We have Lukashenko saying that part of the reason for Russian troops moving into Ukraine from Belarusian territory, because he was asked a question about why that happened, why Russian troops came into Ukraine through Belarus. If you remember, they came into the north, and they were around uh, they were around Chernobyl, Chernihiv, uh, and as well as Kiev. There were Russian troops throughout that entire area. They withdrew because of those peace treaties, the draft treaty that the Ukrainians initialed. They withdrew out of good faith, and then the Ukrainians went back on the treaty. But they were there, and they moved through Belarus to get there, which is something we talked about early on when the war first began, because there was just no other way that they would get there that fast. And, of course, we had the first instance of nuclear terrorism on the part of Ukraine trying to bomb Chernobyl, the power plant. So, uh, ah... It feels so long ago, doesn't it? But he was asked, uh, Lukashenko was asked, why Russian troops were moving through Belarus to do that. Now, Lukashenko essentially flips that and puts the blame on Ukraine, citing the presence of Tochka-U missiles along the border. These are like a ballistic missile system, uh, as well as various actions that Ukraine took against Belarus prior to the war and prior to the sanctions where Belarus was essentially blockaded from flying planes through Ukrainian airspace, uh, a thousand train cars of Belarusian fertilizer was essentially captured at the port of Odessa, and, and 74 Belarusian citizens were captured as well and essentially held hostage. Uh, I say held hostage, they were really just jailed. but. And he also says that they conducted a military operation to get them out, which they, they did in total secrecy. So that was one thing that came from this. He accused Poroshenko of refusing to make peace with Russia and essentially puts most of the blame for the lead up to the war on to Ukraine, but in the end saying that the failure of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia was to... It, all three of them were to blame for the war and because they failed to achieve a lasting peace, even though they were actively engaged. Now, he again, he points to both Poroshenko and Zelensky as refusing to make peace and refusing to come to peace talks and refusing to implement Minsk and the Minsk Accords. Minsk 1 and 2, namely Minsk 2, that's the one that was withstanding for eight years before the war. So... He, as the mediator, because that's the perspective he brings to this, he basically comes from the standpoint of, I've talked to both of you. One of you was open to negotiations and talks the entire time. The other was against it. And the, and the one that was against it was consistently Ukraine in his eyes. Uh, now, he, he also brought a small map of the region. Uh, he brought it with him, put it on the table. It, it's centered around, on Ukraine. So you can see all the countries around Belarus, uh, not around Belarus, around Ukraine, in including Belarus, Poland, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, Romania, Russia, etc. And he had the occupied territories uh, highlighted in a different color. 
from the color that was Ukraine. And he makes several gestures toward that map when he's making his points. So I just thought that was an interesting detail uh, that he, well, brought a map. You, know? you, you always got to respect somebody talking geopolitics when they bring a map to the table. You know, now That's how you know that they, they're serious. But anyway, he, he said that Russia will actually know. Uh, I'm starting in the wrong place because he talks about how Ukraine isn't going to win. Talk about how Ukraine isn't going to win. And this is the part where he starts to point to the map. He goes, quote, here, I have specially drawn this map for you. Now, Russia will destroy you here. And when he says here, he's pointing to the area in the Donbass around Bakhmut and around Kharkov, where most of the fighting is. He says, Russia will destroy you here, both manpower and equipment. Those motivated, ideologically strong Nazis, ideologically strong people are gone. They are all dead. Who is fighting there now? Those whom you catch on the streets and bring to the front line. They are not prepared. Well, there is some professional military, but they can't handle this war machine. Russia has reorganized itself. Russia is at the front today with the latest weapons. They ha- they already have enough drones. It is a completely different army. And the most dangerous thing is, and he, he uh, says some other things in between this before he continues this thought. He says the most dangerous thing is they have 250,000 volunteer corps. Russia has 250,000 volunteers who are now, and again, there's a, a brief break, who are now ready and in reserve, end quote. So here he's referring to the total number of volunteers, uh, the, the people who have alongside the mobilizations volunteered to join the Russian military, uh, which actually lines up just about perfectly with the numbers that we've been working the 80,000 that volunteered uh, when the first mobilization wave happened back in October of last year, when they the Russians called for 300,000 and they got an, an extra 80,000. Uh, we heard that on Scott Ritter. So that was 80,000. And then we got some more numbers just about a month ago saying how over the course of the entire, well, since 2023 began, 160,000 people volunteered to join the Russian military. So you combine 160,000 from just 2023 alone with the 80,000 that volunteered back in October of last year, that's 240,000. So it's just about matches up. So that's nice to get some cooperation here. And he's not necessarily parroting Russian intelligence. He's giving us information he has from Belarusian intelligence. And he makes it a point to bring up that they have their own eyes and ears on the ground. And well, not necessarily on the ground, but they, ha- they have their own ability to see and perceive and understand what's going on around them. And they have a good idea. He's basing all of what he's saying off of his own intelligence services. So that's one of the other reasons I feel that this is a very peculiar and interesting interview. 250,000. Now, he then asks the interviewer, quote, do you understand what 250,000 is? 
there are fewer Russians at the front now. He's talking about the actual front line. There's few. So that, that there's another piece of information there. He says that there's fewer than 250,000 on the actual front line, which is, again, a very interesting piece of info. That they've stalled the Ukrainian offensive with less than 250,000 men, and they have 250,000 reserves uh, uh, from 250,000 volunteers in reserve on top of the, again, million men that they've mobilized over the course of the war. Well, the 100, well, the, the 250,000 is included in that million because we counted the volunteers when we made that number. So they, on top of the 250,000 volunteers, and he doesn't even bring up, bring this up, they have 750,000 conscripts on top of the 250,000 volunteers. He doesn't bring that on up. He just focuses on the, the volunteers. But he used the, the volunteers to make his point. He goes, quote, do you understand what 250,000 is? There are fewer Russians at the front now. Here they are sitting on the defensive. It's not because they can't advance. No need. And Ukrainians go at them, you know, stone drunk, go at the ready as the German Nazis were shown in the films. They storm those barricades, but they don't even reach them. We see this, and again, he's referring to his own intelligence agencies. We see this, and it's true. They can't even reach the minefields. Now, he continues saying, quote, you are simply being destroyed by the thousands. You have 45,000 people who died during the counteroffensive or left the front line crippled. So he's, that's 45,000 casualties, not deaths. 45,000. They are defending themselves. He's talking about Russia. They are defending themselves. Your losses are one to eight. One to eight losses at the front, and they have 250,000 in reserves armed with modern equipment. They will wipe you out, and then they will do what your leadership is most afraid of. They will cut you off to Moldova, to Transnistria. They will cut you off. What will you do then? And here, the Poles are rubbing their hands, pushing the Americans. They will cut you off. You will have this little piece of land left, if at all. What will happen to you? The state of Ukraine will be gone. It is a foregone conclusion. Now, in this, he's during that, he's pointing to the little map he brings. He runs his pointer down along the Black Sea coast that Ukraine has because Russia cutting them off to Moldova, cutting them off to Transnistria. That means creating a land bridge to Transnistria. But in order to get a land bridge to Transnistria, you have to essentially rob Ukraine of its entire Black Sea coast, which makes Ukraine landlocked. And then when he says the Poles are rubbing their hands, pushing the Americans, he's basically saying that the Polish have American support to move into Western Ukraine which leaves Ukraine itself with the, the middle piece, where Kiev is, essentially, assuming that Russia doesn't take more to the, to the east of the Dnieper. So he essentially poses, uh, as an, a head of state, posing the possibility that Ukraine ends up getting partitioned by the end of this war, and that it's going to be a landlocked rump state if it still exists at all, because he doesn't say it's that that's where it's going to go. He says you'll be left with uh, 
you'll be left with this little piece of land and he circles the middle of Ukraine that you'll be you'll have this little piece of land left if at all meaning that he's aware that the possibility of Ukraine not existing on the map is clear and present so that's another very interesting thing to come out of this interview cuz we've been hearing more and more about Ukraine being partitioned, but n- and in light of that, we've also seen the undertone. It's re- it's been down there. There haven't been that many people saying that Ukraine could be essentially eaten completely. Everyone else, again, I've been almost alone saying that I think Ukraine might not exist by the end of this war. Everyone else who thinks Russia is going to win says that it's going to be rump state Ukraine, rump state Ukraine, rump state Ukraine. Then now we're hearing more and more about Poland moving into Western Ukraine. But now we have Lukashenko, someone who is well acquainted with both sides of this war. Someone who is always there during the negotiations and the mediations. He's a major mediating figure here, particularly between Russia and Ukraine saying that there is a good possibility, uh, he's implying that there is a good possibility that if Ukraine doesn't make peace, that if they don't come to the negotiations with everything on the table, no, no preconditions, come with everything on the table, if, and if they don't negotiate in good faith, there might not be a Ukraine when this war is over. Now, he's the first person of that stature to say that. Because before, it's just been me, remember? It's just me saying, I don't think Russia wants to take all of Ukraine, but I think that by force of circumstance, that's where this is going to go. And now here we are, where even Lukashenko of Belarus is laying out, and he's not being hyperbolic. He, he does it in his Lukashenko way, where he has, you know, it's very comedic sometimes, but He's very straightforward and direct. He's saying, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't get your shit together. And the fact that he, as a head of state, with some credibility to his name, is saying that there's a distinct possibility that Ukraine ceases to exist if it continues on the path that it's on, is a a whole step up from just little old me in my little old podcast saying, yeah, you know, I, th- I think Ukraine might not exist on the other side of this one. Yeah, th- this is Lukashenko. So that was a big one. That was a big one. Again, lots of lots of good and useful information to come from this. 45,000 casualties from the offensive, which is way higher than the numbers we were working with. And again, all this is from his own intelligence services. 45,000 casualties. One to eight losses. So for every for every eight Ukrainians that die, one Russian die. Well, one to eight casualties ratio. Which because it, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the death ratio. It wouldn't be the death. The, the death ratio would be even worse because the Ukrainian casualties half half of their casualties are deaths, and only a quarter of Russia's casualties are deaths. So one to eight casualty ratio where for every one russian that gets wounded or dead you have eight wounded or dead ukrainians that's a terrible metric and these are his numbers 
from his intelligence agencies and that that third angle perspective from a country that is right there on the border and has access to info from both sides it, which again it should this is just a really valuable interview 45,000 casualties one to eight losses one to eight loss ratio 250,000 volunteers cooperated with our own numbers here now i wish he would have spoken on the russian mobilization but at the very least we can corroborate that those russian volunteers are in fact in the same quantities that we've been working with and he says it they're going to move to transnistria they're not going to stop where they are now they're going to they're not going to stop with odessa they're going to go to transnistria and resolve multiple issues with a, a single stone's throw and if ukraine doesn't get its act together it not only does it get faced with being carved up because the longer the war goes on the greater the possibility that poland steps in and takes the western bits of ukraine but if the war goes on and they are just destroyed they could lose their statehood altogether ukraine will be partitioned just like poland was in the late 1700s but they they got split up between prussia austria and russia ukraine might get split up between russia poland and belarus or just russia and poland quite frankly or, or russia poland hungary russia poland slovakia we don't know if poland moves in what would stop the other nato members from moving into the west you know, grabbing a, a little sliver of extra territory. And because and Western Ukraine is rich in mineral resources, the Carpathians are rich in mineral resources. If Ukraine's going to collapse, and if the door is open, why not? Sure, the border might look ugly, but hey, you'll have access to resources. Boost your own economy, have direct access to Russia now. You know, it's it's there. It's there. But he continues. Uh, and I thought it was interesting as well, before I continue, I thought it was interesting that he talks about how the Ukrainians run at the Russian barricades and don't even reach them. Now, he says that they don't even reach the minefields. Whether that's true across the entire line, I'm not entirely sure. He's probably referring to specific instances where these assaults just go really, really badly. Because we also have because we also have stories of the Ukrainians getting trapped behind minefields that they were clearing out in the process, that they were in the process of clearing out, excuse me the Russians just deploy more mines behind them. So those two stories wouldn't work together unless he was referring to specific instances of them not even being able to reach the minefields. That and so many of their armored vehicles have been blown up by mines that yeah, he's, he's probably referring to really, really bad assaults that have just decimated, that just got absolutely decimated before they even reached the minefields, which paints a worse picture in some ways than getting stuck in a minefield only to find out that more mines have been laid behind you. So, one to eight losses, 45,000 casualties, and in some of these instances, they can't even get to the minefield. To the minefield, let, let alone the, the actual defenses, the dug-in defenses where the Russians are at, they can't even get to the minefields. Now, that's toxic. That's something. And, again, a very valuable insight. So, he continues then. Uh, actually, where am I? <laughs> I've done all this talking. I've lost place of where exactly I am. Uh, yeah, he said it's a foregone conclusion. Lukashenko then said 
that they needed to stop the war. They needed to sit down for negotiations, everything on the table. And instead of adhering to whatever the United States wants them to do, it's instead of doing what their masters in America say, they need to act in the best interest of Ukraine, which is common sense. But again, people are emotional, especially people in America. They, they don't want to they don't want to see Russia winning. And so they're willing to sacrifice Ukraine to prolong the war and to push that off to the sunset as far as they can and for as long as they can until they can't. And it doesn't matter how many Ukrainians die so long as we don't have to feel uncomfortable about Russia winning. You know, that that's the situation Ukraine is in. And he's right. They need to act in Ukraine's interest instead of us. Ukraine almost had a peace and it was us who stopped them. Now, what if they had taken that piece instead of listening to us? What if they had acted in their own best interest instead of listening to us? Hell, go back before the the Russian invasion in 2022. Go back to Minsk too. What if they had taken the deal? What if they had taken that deal? You know, it would have been a way better deal. They would have had just about all of Ukraine, not Crimea. But what if they had taken Minsk one and ended the war as soon as it started? then they would still have Crimea. So at every point, the deal would have been better had they acted in their own best interest, acted rationally, and took decisive action in a way that wasn't self-sabotaging. Now, perhaps you can give them an ex- a pass with Minsk One. You know, two rebel provinces, we can deal with that. Right? You can give a pass with Minsk One, right? But Minsk Two? The Russians aren't going to recognize the independence of these republics, and they're going to support you in reincorporating them, and you just have to make peace? Well, shoot. We do that. Why not just do that? I mean, we let the Russians use the port of Sevastopol when it was under us, our control. Certainly, the Russians will reciprocate that with us and let us use Sevastopol. Sh- surely, we could work out some type of arrangement. I mean, hell, we still have Odessa. Maybe we can work something out. You know, if they're going to be with us in reincorporating the rebel provinces, why not take the deal? If Had they acted in their own best interest instead of listening to Germany, France, United States, and, and the Normandy format, if they followed the peace instead of going along with the warmongers who didn't have their best interest in mind, they could have had it all. And here they are today. So he's right when he says that they need to, to, to negotiate immediately and to act in their own best interest. Uh, now let's see. Now, when he was asked, when Lukashenko was asked, who needs the peace negotiations? Uh, is, it the United, is it the West? Is it Ukraine? Is it Russia? He says, we shouldn't refer to the West as a single entity anymore. He says, America doesn't need the negotiations, uh, but that Ukraine does. Now, he... Uh, at, a, at a later point in, in the interview, he says that the Europeans, the various Europeans, they have a need for peace because their economies have been ruined by the war. And because the war is in Europe, not in America, they need the peace. Now, I would disagree in him saying that America needs the war. Uh, we don't. <laughs> the war doesn't do anything for us. Uh, it, even under the logic of, oh, we can weaken and hurt Russia... The Russians aren't really weakened. 
So what's the point of continuing the war when the losses are eight to one? So we don't need the war, even off of that logic. But if we operate off of actual interests of the United States, the United States doesn't have interest in Europe. And we certainly don't have interest in Ukraine. So what are we there for? We don't have interest in the war either. Do we have interest in negotiations? Uh, I'm not entirely sure that we do, but we certainly don't have interest in the war. We're not a, we're not an, I would say we're not a party to the war, but we've been arming them and belt feeding them intelligence and ammunition. So I don't think it'd be very fair to say that we're not a party to the war. Oh, well, we're not a party. We're just not, we're just involved. We're involved, but we're not a party. There we go. I think that's the best way to put it because we're not at war, but we're very deeply involved with the country that is. Do we need to be present at the peace talks? No, we don't. But do we need to be funding and arming Ukraine? Also, no. The United States just doesn't have interests over here. We don't, we neither need nor, we neither need the peace nor the war. It's just, we don't have a need in Europe. It's, it is what it is. So that, that's a point of disagreement I have with Lukashenko. But later on in the interview, Lukashenko says he believes that, quote, oh, and he this is referring to the, mil- the special military operation of the Russians. He says, quote, the goals have already been met. Ukraine will never behave so aggressively towards Russia after the end of this war as it did before the war. Ukraine will be different. First of all, there will be people in power who will be more cautious, smart, cunning, sensible, who will understand that neighbors are given by God and it is necessary to build relationships with them. I'm sure. And then the future Ukraine will not be a puppet to Americans. That's how I see it. I'm absolutely convinced that Putin thinks so too. I think that's how he understands this process. Now, he also ruled out the possibility of Ukraine getting its territory back, uh, certainly not the Donbass or Crimea. But that if there was a chance for them to get that, they would have to negotiate with everything on the table. No preconditions, which is what I've said. Again, it's like it's like it's almost uh, almost as if I was listening to myself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he says, and perhaps it's just common sense if. The only chance you have, if you can't beat them militarily, if you want to get the territories back, the only possible other recourse you have is to talk to them about it and try to work out an agreement. Now, of course, it's more likely that they say no, but the talking is the only chance you're going to get because you you clearly aren't going to be able to get it back militarily. You're not you're not getting it back through a military offensive. So talks is the only chance you have of getting the weapon. Uh, I'm getting getting the territory back, excuse me, uh, Carlom went off in the back and it uh, derailed my train of thought. But yeah, that's exactly right. At least that's what I think. If you want a chance, you have to talk. And it has to be no preconditions. You have to lay everything out on the table. Crimea, Donbass, Kherson, Zaporozhia, lay it out. Everything's on the table. What do you want? What do you want? How can we get this back? Oh, we can't. Okay, well, can we have some sort of resource rights? Can we have some sort of mining rights here? Can can we get our can we allow our companies in and they work with your companies if you're going to keep the territory? Okay, can we have freedom of movement? 
within the territories and you know the former ukrainian territories can we have freedom of movement not military but civilian can we have a free flow of trade can we have like a um can we have like a, a customs union between us and russia can we have access to the russian market you know if you're gonna lose at least at least get something out of the loss you know give yourself an incentive to maintain the new peace give yourself something to say look we fought the good fight at least we negotiated in the best interest of the ukrainian people with the reality being that we just couldn't win the war but we didn't win the war but we won the negotiations we got you this 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 and this you know at least try but then they don't want to do it and he he also ruled out the and lukashenko also ruled out the possibility of ukraine getting its territory back prior to any negotiations the whole ukraine has to get all of its territory back and then we can negotiate he he ruled that shit out and then he mocked the the fake peace summit in arabia which excluded russia and we just talked about that a minute ago and in the last episode and rightfully so these are nonsensical ideas these are unrealistic these are emotional ideas not real but he says that there's still a chance for ukraine but that negotiations needed to take place immediately and he's there's still hope he does believe there's still hope and while i think that events will crush all those hopes i i've been honest look they still have the chance it's just like israel with the situation with palestine and their neighbors they don't have to go down the current path that they're going on they can change course if they want to and it would be better for them if they did it's just a matter of will they now only time's gonna tell but i think that lukashenko is just on point with every just about everything he said in this interview again i had that disagreement with his view of american interests and american needs because i'm of the standpoint that america just doesn't have interest in europe but that's a disagreement with me everything else i think he is 100 correct i think so that's what i think but now we'll get into the first of the two summits and i think i've come up with a a fancy little title for today's episode and you'll just have well if you're listening to this you already know what it is but uh uh ah fuck it the tale of two summits the tale of two summits and we'll get into the first summit with the camp david summit uh last week biden hosted a meeting between himself and the prime ministers of japan south korea fumio kishida and han Duksu, uh respectively there biden promised to increase trade between the three countries and said that this was the start of a new era of relations with the three nations uh for the three nations biden announced that they would cooperate in cracking down on cryptocurrency laundering uh coming out of north korea arms sales from north korea to russia enforce freedom of navigation and peaceful resolutions to conflicts in the south china sea with and we'll get into what that really means in a minute because right now it's aimed at north korea and all three of them made statements about north korea but that that south china sea thing sort of gives away what this is really about um he also announced increased economic partnership uh with uh, including a supply chain early warning system where the three countries would work together to produce products and materials that they believe would were in danger of being disrupted in the future and so to be proactive so that i think is a useful thing to have 
I think that's useful. Although the better solution in my view is to just <laughs> manufacture things in the United States. And then you don't really have to worry about supply chain disruptions. If you are the supply chain, I mean, the United States is a big place. If the supply chain is in the United States, but you know, that's just me. Biden doesn't like America first foreign policy. He, he thinks it makes us weaker, not stronger. He thinks me working with, <laughs> let me stop. He thinks that working with our allies makes us stronger. Uh, no, they don't. Building dependencies on foreign nations objectively doesn't make you stronger it makes you more vulnerable yes having alliances with all these countries around the world enables you to do things that you probably couldn't have done if it was just united states uh like for instance fighting a war in iraq or afghanistan or vietnam or funding a proxy war in ukraine and having nato as the means by which you get all your weapons into ukraine because it's most of it's coming through poland you know if we didn't have those alliances, sure, we couldn't do all those things. And you could view that as us being weaker. Sure, that's that'd be a fair criticism of America first policy. But when you look at necessities of the United States, as well as the vulnerabilities that come with having these alliances, which only ever seem to drag us into more conflicts instead of making us safer, which only ever seem to create dependencies instead of independence for the United States, when you look at the economic and the national security side of things, sure, we have we would have fewer capabilities when it came to doing things uh, far away from our shores, but we would objectively be safer, more secure, both in a, a physical sense from the national security side, as well as economically. If we were our own supply chain, if we had energy and resource independence, if we had manufacturing capabilities sufficient to supplant and replace anything else coming out of other countries, we would objectively be more secure as a nation and dare I say stronger, much more resilient to outside threats, as opposed to we're going to be dependent on you so long as we like your government, so long as we like who you are, so long as you're our ally. That, uh, and that's exactly how we got to where we are now with China and Taiwan. We liked China before and we gave them all our industry. And and then it's, oh, now they're the enemy. So, okay, well, what now? Okay, see, because countries aren't going to be your friend forever. So you building these dependencies, at some point, relations get better or they get worse. That's just how things go. So when you go building dependencies on foreign nations on the assumption that they're always going to be your friend, and then it goes wrong, like Iran in the 70s, when they overthrew the Shah, or was it the 60s? When Iran overthrew the Shah, and they replaced him with the Ayatollah, Iran was our friend before. Then they became the enemy overnight. Remember the Mujahideen, how they were, how they were freedom fighters until they weren't, until they were terrorists? It's just time after time after time of countries being our friend, and then suddenly flipping. Uh, oftentimes due to our own policy. If you look at Cuba, for example, or Venezuela or Nicaragua, you know, countries go through changes and sometimes those changes make them more or less hostile towards you. Building dependencies is not making America stronger. 
it is exactly that building dependencies. Now, sometimes those dependencies can work like again, this supply chain early warning system. I think that that might actually be a useful thing. Ultimately, I think it should be a stepping stone towards reshoring of American industry and in the process reshoring of the American supply chain necessities so that we don't really have to worry about disruptions overseas. And if it's used that way, then so be it. But if this is the end, the means to an end, if it's the means to an end, it's okay. But if the early warning and dependency on Japan and South Korea is the ends, well, no, you don't want that. You want a robust domestic productive capability. And I'll, I'll leave that there. We have more to talk about. But yeah, he wants that for supply chain security. He Biden also envisions a global infrastructure and development and investment plan. I, I used and in the wrong place. A global infrastructure development and investment plan, uh, which is a, a, a trilateral expert exchange as well, which is aimed at primarily at ending cancer as well as increased scientific partnerships. Uh, so, uh, and again, the, that one right there is sort of not the, the trilateral expert part that those, uh, a misplaced note that I thought was attached to the, the first one, but the, the global infrastructure and development, the global infrastructure and, uh, I keep using an and in the wrong place, the global infrastructure development and investment plan. There we go. That plan again, remember, cause all this is supposedly taking aim at North Korea. Does North Korea do global infrastructure development and investment? No. I wonder who does. I mean, Japan does. But if uh, we're obviously not talking about Japan here. So who else does global infrastructure development and investment? I wonder who. Uh, no, again, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But, you know, reading between the lines goes a long way. We, we want the trilateral expert exchange aimed at ending cancer and increased scientific partnership between the three countries, U.S., South Korea, Japan. Uh, then Biden uh, handed the stage over. Well, they were all at the same stage. But he had handed the floor over to Prime Minister Su of Korea, of South Korea, excuse me, who announced that the three countries would work together to enforce the rules-based international order. Hmm, I wonder... Is North Korea a threat to the rules-based international order? Hmm, not really. They don't really go beyond the borders of North Korea. I wonder who else could be a threat to the rules-based international order? Wink, wink. But yeah, uh, threats to the rules-based international order. He announced, and this is Prime Minister Su of South Korea, he announced that they would be holding a global youth summit to, again, deepen ties and deepen connections among young students, and again, in the fields of science. Su also promised to work together on monitoring and deterring North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile tests, and deterring North Korea in general, North Korean aggression. Now, he said a number of other things, which were basically him repeating what Biden had said. Uh, then when Prime Minister Kishida of Japan stepped up to the plate, he, gave, he started by giving his condolences to those impacted by the wildfires in Maui, which I thought was a nice touch. And he also promised $2 million in support for the recovery, which, I th which sparked an interesting thought in my mind, which uh, we, I've talked about a number of other times we've had natural disasters or disasters in general in the United States. Um, 
every time someone else has a disaster, you get ads and ads and we're just inundated with give money, give money, give money. And it's always the United States uh, giving aid to other countries. But when the United States is in trouble, who gives aid to us? Oh, nobody. But I guess, I guess now we can add one country to the list. Big old Japan with a gobsmacking two million buckaroos straight to Hawaii, you know, which is more, which is infinitely more than literally everyone else. So I guess Japan's a real friend. Uh, but it, and while, and look, I'm not knocking it. I'm not, I'm not here to deride it. I'm not saying anything bad about them giving us the $2 million. I'm just in perspective here, in perspective, it's wild how that's it. And I'm not saying that we're owed anything from Japan or anyone else. Uh, I'm, I'm really not. I don't, I don't think that way, but it's just crazy to think how, all the aid we give out to the rest of the world and then when we're in a bit of a rough spot we get one country giving two million we give out aids and aid in the oh my god we give out aids oh, that's crazy i mean i guess with the vaccines uh, and acquired immunodeficiency syndrome vaccines hello uh <laughs> but we give out aid in the billions the tens of billions and in the case of ukraine the hundreds of billions even before the ukraine war we were consistently doling out 40 to 45 billion in foreign aid a year 40 to 45 billion in aid a year and that's and then you add hundreds of millions on top of that every time there's a disaster somewhere and then when we're hurting when we're the one in trouble what do we get two not billion two million with an m it says a lot. It it says a lot, you know. And again, I'm not saying that we are entitled to anything. I'm grateful that Japan is uh, more helpful than the federal government on this issue. That's it's crazy. Uh, now we now we wait to see how much of that money gets laundered. But it it is definitely something to keep in perspective: how much we give versus how much we get. So, do we really need to be doing the things that we're doing over around the world? Do we really need to be giving out tens of billions and hundreds of billions in foreign aid? Is that really in our interests? You already know what my answer is. I'll just I'll just leave that on the table. I'll just leave that on the table. But yeah, he gave his condolences, promised $2 million to support the recovery. This is Prime Minister Kishida of Japan. He then reiterated the agreements to work together in science, R&D, and all things North Korea, a very science-heavy orientation is what this uh, summit seems to be, rather than, I would, I'd say, rather than economic. It's more of a science-based uh, thing rather than economic. It has economic undertones, but it's really science and a little bit of geopolitics hidden in the mix. Again, when you read between the lines, they, they keep bringing up North Korea. You bring up North Korea. They want they're going to work together to deter North Korea. Research and development, science, 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 which is good. You know, that part I can go along with. He also said that financial, foreign, uh, uh, that ministers of finance, foreign affairs, defense, and national security, they're all going to be uh, uh, the ministers and advisors for those fields are also going to be meeting uh, once a year now. Uh, these are officials from all three of the nations. They're going to be meeting regularly now, once a year. 
to sort of tighten this cooperation. Now that I'm not entirely certain about, but I'd, I'd rather I'd rather the civilian side of cooperation rather than government because I do not need more entanglements, nor do I need the entanglements I have to get deeper and more complicated and more troublesome. But, you know, this is what they're saying. So, and so that that was a, again, he, those are the things that he himself said and then the rest were sort of, again, reiterating what the other two had already said. Uh, Sue and Biden, because they were essentially reading almost the same script when it came to the things they were doing. They're, the list of things they were doing wasn't exactly long, so they, they'll have to take their different pitch and their different approach. But so that's what all three of them said. Now, we can break this down a little bit. Because North Korea, and I've been hinting at this throughout the, the entire segment here, but North Korea has been just propped up as the reason or the threat that necessitates this summit. It's necessary for the democracies to come together to fight the threat that is North Korea. Crypto laundering in the billions of dollars. Hey, don't look. Hey, hey, don't. Hey, don't look at that. Uh, that FTX. Hey, don't look at those. Don't look at those politicians in your own country who were involved in laundering money through crypto and through Ukraine. Hmm. Using FTX. Hey, don't look at that Sam Bankman Free guy. Don't look at scam bankrupt fraud. He's an innocent boy, who's going to jail. <laughs> don't look at him. No, look at North Korea and how much money they're laundering using crypto. Crypto bad. We need government control. That's what we need. So, yeah. North Korea just being propped up all of a sudden. And you know what? I said this. I, I saw this coming when we started getting reports of uh, North Korean missiles and how all that North Korea hype was coming back up. And then that, that soldier defected to North Korea. Like I saw this coming from a mile away. And I said, you know what? They're going to use this as justification to start ramping things up, ramping up tensions and conflict with North Korea again. I, I said it. Did I not say it? Come on now. You guys heard me. <laughs> I said it. North Korea, and here we are. Now North Korea is being propped up as the, this immense danger to our well-being and to our security. The danger to the rules-based international order. But I think I think they're just being just being propped up as that threat, because given the emphasis on supply chains, research and development and keeping our edge in this field of science, as well as upholding, again, the rules based international order, not international law, not, not international law, the rules based international order, which is our hegemony. It seems to me that North Korea is really just a stand in for, and you might have guessed it by now with the South China Sea, rules based international order, supply chains, hmm, infrastructure development and investment globally. Hmm. I'm sure you, you've probably guessed it by now. I think that North Korea is just being used as a stand in for China. So they don't openly come out and say that we're going to be threatening and countering China. That's what this is. North Korea is being used as a stand-in for China. And thus, China is the one this trilateral pact is actually meant to counter. Now, 
although, although, there's, just speculate with me for a minute. It does leave me asking. Uh, does yeah, well, but before I get into that, I I actually just skipped over a whole bunch of my notes that I wanted to talk about. Well, but yeah, they're they're standing for China now, unless and now here's here's where we go. Here we speculate for a minute now. Unless North Korea is actually a much stronger nation than we've all been led to believe, uh, which honestly I'm starting to think. I mean, I, we're told they're backwater. We're told that they, they're, they're largely agrarian society. We're told that they have technology 60 years in the past. But we've been hearing some stuff coming out of North Korea. Uh, chief among them being that they have a hypersonic missile, which just, oh my goodness. I don't know if that's true or not, but if it's true, again, what the fuck are we doing? If they have hypersonics, that's crazy. They have hypersonic. We know that they have nuclear weapons, but to have hypersonic missiles in general is just an, a step above the rest. That's just a cut above the rest and gives them a military potency that even we don't have, which is a first for North Korea. And uh, again, they're supplying drones to Russia. They were one of the first countries to start their own Lend-Lease program to Russia. They were giving drones, and they weren't giving outdated Kalashnikovs or T-60s to Russia. They're giving modern drones to Russia. Iran would follow suit, but the North Koreans did it first. So, okay, they have they have modern drones, and then they're not just for show, because uh, clearly they're handing them to the Russians, and the Russians wouldn't take them if they were just for show. So they're legit. Legit drones, military combat capable, or at the very least, good enough for the Russians to use as a basis for making their own. And they may or may not have hypersonic missiles, and they have nuclear weapons. Uh, what else do they have? And then on top of that, they remember they you don't just manifest a hypersonic missile. That it takes industry to build one of those. It takes industry to build a drone. So what type of industry is North Korea sitting on, to where they can make all this stuff? I now, uh, unless North Korea is just this way stronger nation than we've all been led to believe, and I'm, I'm, I'm more and more I'm inclined to believe that. Un- unless North Korea is just way stronger, I think this is about China. But I do believe North Korea is stronger than we've been led to believe. I think it's true. Now, I don't think it's true enough to justify a, a triple entente between the United States, Japan, and South Korea to contain them. I think that's overkill. But what if it's not? No, I, I think it is. I think it is. Even though I think North Korea is stronger than we give them credit for, I think it's overkill. But again, it's more likely that North Korea is being used as a stand-in for China. And thus, China's the one that this trilateral pact is actually meant to count. Now, it does leave me asking, and I finally get to this after... Um, laying out my thoughts, it does leave me asking, what happened to the Quad? You know, that other alliance we had that everyone was talking about and, and hyping up as though it was uh, the, the big new thing. You know, when, when the hype around the Quad and the and AUKUS was all the rage. You know, the Quad. Don't you remember the Quad guys? India, Australia, Japan, the US, the Quad. You know, 
you quad, I quad, we quad, she quad. <laughs> no, who, don't you remember the quad? Why are all these economic, military, and scientific cooperation programs being presented to us in a completely different grouping of nations? U.S., South Korea, Japan, and not simply layered on top of the quad to make it a more comprehensive partnership. And you could just add South Korea to the quad and make it uh, the pent, the penthouse, the Pentagon. There you go. You could have did that. And then layered all this scientific and economic cooperation and limited national security cooperation on top of that and made the alliance something uh, a bit more in depth, a bit more depth, give a little bit more depth to the quad instead of making a whole new thing. Why wouldn't you do that? That's what I'm asking myself. And then on top of that, why, again, why is South Korea not just added to the quad? Why are, why do you have a separate alliance? And why would you not add everything you're doing here to the quad? It just doesn't make sense. Uh, but I guess we have to be doing something. We have to be doing something. Keeping up with the Kardashians, or in this case, keeping up with the BRICS. Uh, we're building new alliances here, new alliances there. Uh, uh, we're forgetting alliances everywhere. So that we can feel like we're doing something, even though nothing comprehensive is coming out of this because we're spreading ourselves so thin. But... Uh, uh, those are questions that I would have. Why is South Korea not just added to the quad? Why don't you just do all these things you're doing with Japan and South Korea with the quad? Is Australia not worthy of being in with Japan and South Korea? Is South Korea just not worthy of being in the quad? Uh, I don't know. But it, it just doesn't make sense to make a, bra a, a brand new alliance when you could have just done all this with the same alliance you had. Just a thought, just a thought. Um, but yeah, this summit to me also seems to be meant as a counter. On, on top of being a, a veiled threat to China, it seems more to be a counter to the Big Bricks Summit, and we'll talk about that summit in a minute. And not a counter in a, a material or a tangible way, but more in the sense of providing us with a counter narrative instead of just letting the Bricks have a good day instead of letting russia and china have one good day we're gonna we're gonna spoil the party by having our own party and we're gonna invite our real friends and we we get two countries to come along and they have 40 but but you know that's you see the news coverage is how we compensate for that because we're gonna have all the news cover the 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 three nations summit in camp david and they're gonna ignore the BRICS summit and you have to rely on foreign news if you want to learn anything about the BRICS summit you know that's the power of the propaganda press, baby. But I suppose that's why you all come to me. <laughs> but yeah, that's... It's not that this Camp David thing was a bad summit. Again, the supply chain thing might actually be useful. If it is a means to an end, and that end is self-sufficiency. But it's largely just a veiled threat to China. And again, the, the science and research and development at the civilian level is also something I can get behind. It's just why add new entanglements and new layers of entanglements? Uh, even if you disagree with America first and America going home, 
why go out of your way to make a new alliance when you could have just built on the alliance you already had? Add South Korea to the quad so that there's your counter narrative. Oh, see, hey, you, you're adding these countries to the BRICS. Well, we're adding South Korea to the quad, you know, and we're really countering China and North Korea at the same time. You know, but I, I guess, I guess they're doing this, but, but yeah, it, it's not like there was a bad summit. It's just that it was quite lackluster, quite lack, lackluster. Uh, again, we'll see if anything truly tangible does come out of this. Uh, and regards to that $2 million that Japan has promised, we'll see if that gets laundered or if it does make its way to, to Hawaii. But, uh, yeah, this is a. It was a pretty decent summit. I'll, I'll give him that. It was a pretty decent summit. Biden had issues in the beginning, but, you know, he, he kept it together and he didn't have to talk much. <laughs> but that's some that's one summit. But this is the tale of two summits. So now we'll get into the next one. And that next summit is, of course, the big BRICS summit, the big BRICS summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. Now, at the moment, it's still ongoing, so it hasn't concluded yet. So we'll do a follow-up on this in the next week's episode, so stay tuned. But as of right now, as of right now, we have a good enough list of things to talk about for the time being. And hopefully, we'll get something concrete to come out of it, and we can discuss the summit in depth. But for now, we can just go over the things that we know are likely to be discussed here and what they might mean. Now, before the summit, there was a bit of hubbub uh, in the months prior to the meeting because South Africa, being a part of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, would have been obligated to arrest Putin if Putin showed up in South Africa for this summit. Uh, and the issue was resolved by them just sending Sergei Lavrov in, in Putin's place. Uh, Sergei Lavrov being a, a very reliable substitution for Putin when it comes to matters of foreign affairs. So everything's going rather smoothly for the time being. That issue was avoided entirely. And as of now, 40 countries, well, over 40 countries, have attended. Now, I, I was trying to get a little bit of info on this, and I was reading an article from Reuters, and oh my goodness, it, it's, it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. It was just so much derision and so much... So much salt there was just so much salt and it was, it was just like when 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 cry me a mississippi get out of here it's like this motley crew consisting of countries like iran and argentina and, and they just completely ignore the fact that yeah iran and argentina is there but china india russia brazil mexico indonesia Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the heavy hitters, okay? It's like they tried to paint this as though this was a meeting of the most backwater of backwater nations. <laughs> when you have some of the heaviest hitters from an economic standpoint showing up to this summit. We just talked last week about how Russia is, in purchasing power parity terms, they are the largest economy in Europe and fifth largest in the world. China in purchasing power parity is number one. And if I'm not mistaken, 
I think India is somewhere. I, I think India is on top. Let me. I'm gonna look that up. I actually don't know where India's economy ranks. So I'm gonna look that up right now. Economy uh, ranking. But yeah, it, it's not like these are some. Oh, India is. Wait, it says India's fifth. That, that they must be not be doing purchasing power parity. Oh, brother, I gotta. I don't even know what the point of this whole nominal GDP thing is. What's the point? What's the point? If you're not going to account for the conditions on the ground, then what's the point? Uh, PPP. There we go. PPP. Oh, they're the third. Wow. <laughs> they're the third largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. Fifth largest in nominal. Third largest in purchasing power parity terms. China's number one, India's number three, Russia's number five, United States is number two in purchasing power parity terms. So who's number four? That, that has to be Japan, right? Uh, uh, GDP. Um, I'm doing all this live. I'm doing, doing all this live. Yeah. So we have. Uh, hey, get out of my way. No, India. Yeah, Japan's number four. Germany's. Ah. Uh, well, I guess this is not updated yet because Russia has overtaken Germany as number five, Germany, which means Germany's number six in purchasing power parity. But yeah, Japan's number four, but India's number three in purchasing power parity terms with nearly half the economy of the United States and China's economy is larger than the United States. Russia's number five in purchasing power parity terms. And, and they're the largest economy in Europe. The largest economy in Europe. Indonesia, number seven. Brazil, number eight. Like, come on now. Let's let's stop playing games with these people. Let's uh I it's it's so hard to have discussions with people about this because they immediately write off the entire rest of the world as poor, bankrupt, and broke. <laughs> but then when you look at the numbers, it's like, oh wow, all these uh, allies we have aren't quite as useful as we thought they were. Oh, wow. The fastest growing economies on the planet are all not in the West. I mean, the, the United States is being deindustrialized, and even then, we're still such a massive outlier to the rest of them that it's just ridiculous. And, I, and you know what? That probably just comes with the size. America's a gargantuan place with a gargantuan population. Three, if, if there was ever any doubt that we had 300 million people living here, uh, go to a mall on Black Friday and you'll realize that that's not an exaggerated number. So one can only imagine what a population of a billion and a half would look like, <coughs> China, India. But these are heavy-hitting economies and the fastest-growing economies. You have Egypt, Arabia, the UAE. Uh, these are these are not slouches. Turkey, joining BRICS, Venezuela, massive oil producer. Damn near all of OPEC wants in on the BRICS. It, uh, uh, now tell me that's not meaningful. Tell me that damn near all of OPEC and OPEC plus trying to join the BRICS isn't meaningful. That essentially makes BRICS OPEC plus plus. Except now you have massive mineral producers. Now you have massive manufacturers. Uh, China. Now you have raw materials now you have all the other raw materials africa brazil like come on now this is a massive 
summit. And I, I know I'm going on a tangent about this, but it's not like Reuters is the only one downplaying the significance of this. Like if you are not looking at alternative media, nobody's really talking about the BRICS summit in any context other than, oh, they want to replace the dollar. China's trying to, uh, China's trying to usurp American influence around the world. It's so much bigger than China, bro. It's so much bigger than China. Please hear me. It's so much bigger than China. It is literally the world minus Europe, minus United States. It's literally the world. Everyone's in on the take except for us because we're too busy thinking about the West. <laughs> My goodness. But yeah, we 40 countries in attendance, uh, damn near half of that trying to join the alliance formally. Uh, and on the topic of expansion, it seems as though the core members of BRICS, that being Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, it seems that they have reached a consensus that expansion is a go. They're, they're going to green light expansion of the BRICS, which means that countries like Iran, Mexico, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Turkey, they're likely to gain full membership in the months ahead. And that's going to have a massive impact on the global economy. Because uh, now you're going to have these fast-growing economies with these large populations. Egypt has 100 million people. Turkey has 80 million people. Iran has 80 million people. You start to link them up with energy, manufacturing, infrastructure, development, and then you sort of, you sort of uh, trickle that into Africa with all the investment going in it. And then you overlaid the BRI on top of that, the Belt and Road. Like this is a positive feedback loop in the international economy. And they're seeking to, to sort of, sort of put a foundation under that. They're going to underride the entire thing with a new currency. It's not going to be a currency that you walk around with in your pocket. That, that, that seems to have been ruled out so far. But they're going to have a gold-backed trade settlement currency. So this is a currency that's only going to exist in trade settlements, purely so they don't have to use the dollar. Purely so they don't have to use the dollar. And countries are ditching the dollar. They're already doing trade in local currencies, uh, namely in Africa and in East Asia. And even between Russia and Turkey, you see this, and Russia and China. All this trade being done not in U.S. dollars. You throw in a gold-backed trade settlement currency, why would anyone want to use the dollar? If I have to choose between a currency that is based in confidence and a currency that's based in gold, I'm going to choose the currency based in gold. Why wouldn't I? I'd be goofy to do otherwise. And so that's exactly what they're going to do. And then what happens to us? We get inflation because they're not going to want our dollars anymore. So they're going to hand them right back and hand them right. They're going to dump the dollar in whatever way they can. They're going to go selling off dollar denominated assets so they can get assets denominated in other currencies. Or perhaps they want to keep larger reserves of their own currency on hand to use for the trade settlement or larger reserves of say the Russian ruble or the, the Indian rupee or Chinese yuan. It's going to be like a, a basket of currencies is the term that I'm hearing thrown around. 
It's not going to be, oh, yuan, oh, look, the yuan's the reserve currency now. No, it's not going to be that way. Again, it's bigger than China. It's the world. But another thing I've seen, another thing I've seen, and the, the BRICS summit is a part of that, and perhaps the biggest part of that, to tell you the truth, in terms of reshaping the global order. When you look at BRICS, when you look at the Russia-Africa summit and Russia promising skills-based development and energy based development in Africa, when you look at the, the Belt and Road Initiative, when you look at the organization of Islamic cooperation, when you look at the Arab League and the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and even the CSTO, when you uh, go back in time, you see how they, the Russians and their CSTO allies thwarted uh, attempted overthrows of the government in Belarus and Kazakhstan in 2020 and 2021, respectively. What we're noticing and again, BRICS is sort of the, the crowning jewel of this all, of the whole thing. What we're noticing is that multilateral international institutions are being used as counter mechanisms to U.S. hegemony in one region after the next. One region after the next, especially the Arab League and the and the OIC when it comes to the Middle East. That's just a, a wombo combo. Oh, and OPEC. How could I forget OPEC? And OPEC Plus. Remember, remember when Biden went begging on his knees for the, the Arabians not to cut production and raise the prices and they cut it anyway? Because who cares what he thinks when we have OPEC Plus and we literally have this organization for the raising and the lowering of the oil prices? You're not a member. Why do we care about you? And quite frankly, Biden never should have had to go because he never should have sabotaged our energy production. We should have never even been in that position to where we, it was an, even an idea. We would have been thanking them. But when you see all these international organizations, some of them large, some of them small, but most of them regional. Again, the Arab League, the OIC, the Russia, Africa, Africa, the African Union, uh, and even the, the Eurasian Economic Union as well, although that one plays a lesser role, the CSTL, the former Soviet space. So you have these regional and then broader international organizations, which collectively marshal the strength of multiple nations to fight U.S. hegemony. Now, people conflate this with, oh, the world is... Uh, fighting the United States. Oh, this is dangerous for the United States. No, 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 no. It's dangerous for U.S. control and hegemony. But when you're like me and you recognize that we really don't need the control, because why do we need to be in Africa? Why do we need to be in the Middle East? Why do we need to be in Asia? We're not... Why do we need to have a presence in the Indo-Pacific? What are we going to do in the Indian Ocean? Why are they there? Let's go. Let's go home. Why are we in Ukraine? When you're like me and you realize that a lot of these places really don't matter to the United States, you realize, oh, it's not a threat to the U.S. It's easier to recognize the distinction between the U.S. and the U.S. empire. I'll say that much. Because none of the things happening, none of the things going on with any of these organizations and them pushing us out of their regions, as we're seeing with all the peace moving through the Middle East, as we're seeing with the, the wrapping up of the Syrian civil war, as we're seeing with what well, we're probably going to see at some point with Africa as Russia and China get more involved with them. But you can sort of see 
the sentiments being built up with the coup in Niger and how many people oppose Western intervention, Western domination there. And that in that specific part of Africa, it's primarily targeted at France. You can see that it's not the U.S. who's in danger. It's the control that's in danger. It's the control. It's not us. It's not France in danger because there's a coup in Niger. They didn't get embargoed because there was a coup in Niger. They got embargoed because they threatened to put them down militarily. And then they got what they fucking deserved. <laughs> uh, hopefully they can resolve it. But the coup by itself in Niger wasn't a threat to France. Just as Syria demanding its land back isn't a threat to the United States. Just as Iran and Saudi Arabia making peace and, and that peace being brokered by China isn't a threat to the United States. It's not a threat to us. It's a threat to our control over other places around the world. That's the empire. Therefore, it is a threat to the empire. If we don't have the control, then we don't have an empire. We don't need the empire, but the imperialists in Washington don't view it that way. And that's what this is. All these international organizations, one after the next, and sometimes overlapping with one another, working together to force out U.S. hegemony, ending U.S. control in region after region after region. And the most prescient examples of this, again, being Belarus and Kazakhstan, when Russia intervened keep us from overthrowing Belarus and to keep us from overthrowing Kazakhstan with, with the OIC accepting Iran back in and Iran being able to actually fill their seat at the OIC because Arabia let their their diplomats in with the Arab League welcoming Syria back into their the family and then the Belt and Road and, and the Russia-Africa cooperation overlaying with one another to do these development projects in Africa one after the next you have these international organizations being used and being leveraged by the nations who are a part of them to end or weaken u.s control over their own countries the countries who are a part of these organizations they're being used as a counter mechanism to u.s hegemony in one region after the next and increasingly to great effect it's interesting to watch i'll say that much although it does have me worried that people in my government are going to get weird ideas about using military intervention to solve every problem that they face because they don't know how to do diplomacy they don't know how to talk and they don't know what a u.s interest is they really don't that's the danger i see not the danger that they're just that these other countries who want us to leave are going to one day wake up and just start bombing america but that our government is going to do something stupid like the talk of an intervention in Niger because France got humiliated. And now we're talking about a U.S. military intervention there when we're already losing in Ukraine or a military intervention in Taiwan. It's this transition from global U.S. hegemony to the multipolar world order is a very dangerous moment in time. It's a necessary moment in time but a very dangerous one, very dangerous. And I, I said it, uh, it reminds me of something I, I said 
I, way, way back towards the early piece, the early parts, the early days, excuse me, of the podcast. When I said America's becoming more insular and we're going home, we're, we're, we're becoming more inwardly focused, more isolationist, whereas China is becoming more and more outwardly focused. And this period of time, until those two shifts complete, uh, specifically, uh, well, particularly the U.S. shift inwards, until that shift completes, then you're going to have this period of time where conflict is increasingly possible as the forces of the empire in the United States fight against the forces of the American nation. And the forces, well, I didn't say it like that, but you know, the forces that want America to be involved everywhere, being in conflict with the forces that say, maybe it's time to pack it up and go home. Those forces, as evident by their refusal to withdraw just 900 troops from Syria who are doing nothing, those forces aren't gonna go away and they're not gonna go away easily. And while they're still here, while they still have power, they pre present an inherent danger to us and everyone else because they're going to go put us in places. They're going to stay in places that we don't need to be in and get us into conflicts that don't need to happen. Again, Taiwan is a, such an, avo an easily avoidable conflict that people just want. They just want it. They, it's not about stopping it. It's not about peace. It's about we want the conflict because we want to feel important. And that's dangerous. But we're, we're seeing that. And with the neglect of our own people with these one disaster after the next, I can only imagine how many people are going to turn up for Trump when the 2024 election comes around, especially with inflation, especially with the state of the economy. We're slipping into a depression and it's going to be blamed on the Democrats. They, they have, it's going to be blamed on them. They had the presidency, they had the Senate, they had the House for two years. It's going to be blamed on them. What happens next? Well, if we get a Trump presidency, we'll we'll have a one hell of a time getting out of that depression. I I think we will in time, and I think that that the blow will be greatly softened if we have a Trump presidency. And I think there will be a Trump presidency. I don't see how America First doesn't win out. I think the struggle between American involvement and American isolation, well, or at, at this phase in the game, American retrenchment, not quite isolation yet. I think that struggle is about to have a uh, swing decisively in favor of going home. But until that struggle, but until that decisive swing happens, which will come with a Trump presidency and him being sworn into office, because he, he has to be in office first. And uh, I, I have no idea what these people are going to do. And when they lose, <laughs> I have no idea what they, they're going to throw the, the kitchen sink at us for kicking them out of power. But for the time being, the people who want us involved everywhere, wanting to cement their power and cement their position, not just at home, but around the world, because they're fighting a two-front battle, they're going to be incredibly dangerous. And with these multinational organizations work, actively working in opposition to them in one region after the next, I have the strong sneaking suspicion that these people are going to do something stupid, these people being our government. But we will see. I mean, it's not like the rise of the multipolar world order is a bad thing for United States. People uh, are particularly and particularly on the more populist conservative side tend to think that way because they're overtly hostile to China, but really it's, it's not. It's only a problem 
when it comes to you maintaining control. And I think that's what it really is. Because even the people who want to go home uh, haven't reconciled going home with not having control over everything everywhere. They haven't, they haven't reconciled that yet. And we'll get to that point. But the reconciliation hasn't happened yet. So we maintain com conflicting beliefs. And by we, I mean other people. <laughs> Where we want to go home. We don't want to be the world's policeman, but we want to have a say in everything that goes on around the world. And those two ideas just don't mix. But the multipolar world order isn't bad for the United States. In fact, we of all nations stand to gain the most if we were to embrace the multipolar world order. Because not only will we not have to be the world's policemen, not only will we not have to fight China, if we left these alliances alone, instead of building more and more and more and more alliances and getting more and more and more and more commitments, if we went home and actually pursued an America first policy, well, America first policy doesn't mean go fight a war with China. America first doesn't mean go give $200 billion to Ukraine. So right off the bat, China and Russia don't have to be our enemies. America first is building our own supply chains, our own manufacturing, and strengthening our own dollar based in gold. So you do those things, suddenly China's not an enemy. In fact, China's just another trade partner. You do those things and you don't have to worry about supply chain disruptions. You don't have to worry about China cutting off your chips because they invaded Taiwan. You don't have to worry about those things. You don't have to worry about a BRICS currency destroying the dollar's dominance overseas. Your currency would be backed in gold. It would have value in and of itself. You're the second largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. And we're deindustrialized. Imagine a reindustrialized United States. Now imagine a reindustrialized United States with a currency that's worth something that doesn't lose its value every year. How could any country in an environment like that where our troops are here defending our borders instead of in random locations around the world, uh, again, Syria, Iraq, you know, the usual suspects. In that world, the United States is safer, wealthier, and more prosperous and has better relationships with other countries outside of our borders. The multipolar world order does not have to be and in and of itself is not detrimental to the United States. It is merely our posture that makes it so. Our posture of wanting to control everything. But we can't control everything. But certain people in our government can't accept that they will no longer control everything. So they fight against something that was going to happen anyway. The rise of a multipolar world order. But again, if we play our cards right, we can carve one nicely shaped piece of the pie out for ourselves in this new world order. And all we have to do is take a step back and through trade and an absence of allies, we can do exactly that. We can do it. It's, it doesn't take much, really. The United States is perfectly positioned to do so. We have trade access with the East and the West, Europe, Africa, Latin America, Asia. We have trade access with them all because we have two coastlines in the Atlantic and the Pacific. Like, we can be the great trading nation. It really doesn't have to be the way that it is now. And I think that a Trump presidency will demonstrate exactly what I'm talking about right now. Uh, I think that's exactly what we need. And, yeah, it can be done. There, there's, it, there's, that's just the best way I could put it. It can be done. And honestly, it should be done.
not just because I say so, but because it'd be beneficial to us and everyone else around the world. You want to help the world stop fighting the multipolar world, work with the multipolar world. And we don't need to be part of some club. We don't need to be a part of BRICS. You just do trade with everyone, have alliances with no one, work out bilateral trade deals, country by country by country. And now you have access to every market, every country, every good that is up for sale, you can have access to it. You can have it all. You just have to have the freedom of navigation <laughs> to do it but we're not going to be able to do that if we have the wet the dead corpse of the west strapped to our hip we have to let that go we have to let america first be america first and not the west first not nato first and not our allies first we have to let america first go all the way to its logical conclusion and be america first and then we'll have exactly what we need trade with everyone alliances with no one and a military that fights for our country instead of plundering the resources of someone else and a government that serves our people because if, if you remove our presence from every other country on the planet and we're only in united our military is only in united states then guess what if we have no alliances and our military is here, then your government has no other option than to be involved in American affairs. They have no other option other than to be America first, which is why I say that isolationism, the one true ideology, is America first taken to its logical conclusions. And I think that the great isolationist era is about to return to us after seven or almost 80 years of absence it's that's time people it's so time ah but that is all i've got for you today my lovely listeners i do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast and i do thank you for listening to me rant about geopolitics every week but that is all i've got the world is changing in ways both good and bad and strange, uh, definitely strange. But you know what? No matter how it changes, no matter what weird things we observe along the way, we will have fun watching it all together. Now, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.